0: the music is running through you and moving and you're in this space where everyone else is kind of in this collective action together, Um, you can kind of like lose yourself in that and you can get outside of your head and, and just be in your body. And I think that was something that was really appealing to me at that point in my life.
1: Hello, my name is Kay Anderson and you are listening to Lost Spaces, the podcast that mourns the death of queer nightlife. Every episode I talk to a different person about a venue from their past, the memories that they created there and the people that they used to know. So this week I've got something to admit. I have not been out dancing in a really, really long time. And when I say dancing, I mean like sweaty, throbbing, disgustingly hot kind of hours and hours of dehydrated bodies on a dance floor kind of dancing. And I kind of miss it, you know what I mean? And I got a nice reminder of how important it used to be in my life this week when I caught up with Alex Marcus, who is the podcast director of The Pop Break, a digital pop culture and entertainment online magazine. Now, Alex is from New Jersey, but he moved to New York City when he went to college in the mid-noughties, and this gave him an opportunity to, I'm going to say it's really cheesy, spread his wings and also to explore his queerness a little more. And what better place to do that? than on the sweaty dance floor of Splash Nightclub, a sprawling two-floor gay bar in Manhattan that closed in 2013. We talk all about the weird hobbies that we adopt to quote-unquote pass as straight when we are kids, being the token gay in any given situation, and what it's like to lose yourself in the crowd. Let's get into it. This is kind of the question I ask everyone when I'm asking them about
0: New York City. Was it always your dream to live in New York City? I think it was. I've thought about this a lot. You think it was. And I honestly think that it was like me as like a six-year-old watching reruns of Mad About You at like four in the afternoon and thinking, that's like my dream life. I, if I could only just have like, you know, back then I thought I would have a wife. And it was like, you're just being a professional person with a wife and a dog. And you could just like go to a coffee shop in the middle of the day and hang out with your friend. And just like, I don't know, there was something about that that was just like, wow, that's what adults do. And I think that is where like the the dream of New York City was born for me. Dream big.
1: Coffee in the middle of the afternoon and a dog.
0: (laughs) Yes. Well, you know, I think me, like many people, looked at Paul Reiser as a role model.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And and so going to college in New York City, moving somewhere that's like an hour away from where you live, so not a huge amount of distance away, but still enough that you're like, wow, I'm independent, I'm this new person. Yeah. Do you remember what your first
0: memories of New York City were? The thing that I fell in love with so fast was that you could just, with your own two feet, get up, walk out the door, and go anywhere in the entire city if you had the time and the patience and the right Parachutes, shoes <laughs> and I just really loved that because like as a kid I actually had a lot of um, medical issues growing up. I used to break a lot of bones. I had a condition that caused me to break a lot of bones and I actually when I was 10 was in a wheelchair for a year um, yeah. and at the time it was kind of scary. They didn't know if I'd be able to walk again and luckily I did and um, you know as a teenager and, and young adult I didn't have any more fractures and i got very lucky in that respect but that always made me Really value the ability to just walk on my own to wherever I needed to go, unassisted, just, you know. And so I think that that kind of played into the romanticization of New York City as a place oh for me. My. And those, like, long fall days. Oh, I don't know why I said fall, because that's no one
1: in any other part of the world says fall, but I, I know you know what I mean. Yes. The, the, <laughs> the long fall days and walking in the park and having a big long jacket on, that kind of thing, right?
0: Yeah, if you just wanted a day to yourself, you could spend the whole day out and about just walking around being surrounded by a million people and feeling so stimulated and engaged and part of the world. And you know, I kind of live in a suburban area now and that's the thing that I miss most about it is feeling like no matter what your day is like, you are surrounded by literally millions of people having millions of different days, completely different walks of life, different life experiences, and you're just forced to be a part of the world. And I just love that about the city.
1: But on the flip side, at least where you are now, you're not like walking behind people who are going really slow and getting angry at them. <laughs> but And so do you remember, wait, okay, back up a step. So before you'd moved to New York, where were you on your queer journey? Like, had you come out? Had you experienced anything of the scene or of dating or of anything like that?
0: Yeah, so I came out slowly my senior year of high school, And I went to a small school, and this is back in, like, 2007, 2008. And so I was the only person in my entire school who was out at the time. In the years since, turns out, many queer people were in the school while I was there. But nobody was out Mm. other than me. Um, That first year was pretty much me being the only gay person that everyone around me knew. I did actually get to have a boyfriend for a few months, which was like a friend of a friend. And it was like, oh, you two are both gay, so you guys should date. And that was basically how we met. (laughs) And you know, we were 17, so we're like, all right, that works for a little while at least, but um, uh, not for too long. (laughs) But yeah, so going into New York, it was just being around so many queer people for the first time. That just kind of blew my mind. I didn't realize how much I was missing in my experience until I had the opportunity to not be the only queer person in a space and that was a really kind of radical oh. kind of shift in my understanding of a lot
1: of things and so when you got to New York did you throw yourself in head first or did you tentatively put your toe in the water uh,
0: well I tend to be a tentative sort of fellow so I definitely wouldn't say that I went head first mm. in that first year was kind of like a Really just acquainting myself to the city and being 18 and everything was kind of like overwhelming and trying say, to figure out.
1: You took you more than a year to go <laughs> out on the scene? Is that what you're about to tell me?
0: Well, yeah, because I unfortunately, my first year I was just around like I kind of fell into the pattern that I was used to, which was being the only gay person in in this space. And it wasn't until my second year that I really started making a lot of gay friends. And then we started going out all the time. And then it was really kind of fantastic. But it took me a little bit of time to get there.
1: <laughs> wow.
0: Okay. So I want to pick up on something that you said
1: earlier, which was that you didn't realize how much you were missing of the queer experience until you got to New York City. What do you mean by that? And like, what were you missing?
0: I guess just that kind of thing that happens where you don't need to explain your experience to people. It's just kind of assumed. Mm. And that was something that I had never experienced in regards to my sexuality because I was either in the closet and trying to translate everything through that lens, or I was basically spokesperson for gay people uh, to a bunch of well-meaning kids who were ha- very excited to have a gay friend, um, which I'm lucky to have had that, you know, in the sense of I wasn't bullied in that way. Actually, mm-hmm. I was bullied more for being gay before I came out than afterwards. As soon as I came out, everybody was like, oh, well, now that you're actually gay, we're not going to call you a fag anymore. Oh, it's just like, I don't know how that works, but <laughs> thanks. It's like you took their power away or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but so the experience of, like, Once I actually got a bunch of queer friends, it was kind of, it was a situation where I just ended up being in a, in a dorm where everybody in the dorm, and it was like six or seven people in an apartment and we were all queer. And then that kind of opened up a lot of different doors. And that experience was the sense of like, we all are kind of coming from different places, but that piece didn't need to be translated. It wasn't a novelty. It wasn't a a weird sort of thing that people were fascinated Mm -hmm. by. It was just part of the way we all moved through the world. And it was really nice to be able to let your guard down in that way and just, you know, take for granted that you don't need to constantly translate your experience for other people's benefit. Or
1: play bits down.
0: Yeah, absolutely. A lot of those early years of coming out was realizing how much anxiety I had around performing a certain level of masculinity to avoid ridicule and then being able to let go of that and there was like a big burst at the beginning where it was like oh a lot of these things that I was actively doing I don't need to do anymore and then there was a long period of things that you don't necessarily realize that you're doing until you can relax a little Mm -hmm. bit and letting go of those things too and just feeling more comfortable in yourself for who you actually are and how did that work for you like did you code
1: switch did you act more uh, this terminology is, is probably problematic, but like act more yourself in one setting and act more masculine or, uh, the, the way you thought people were expecting you to act in another setting or did those two people blend together?
0: Yeah. I think that for me, like, so for instance, when I was growing up, I was very big into baseball. Baseball was like my whole personality. I didn't play baseball. I just knew everything about it. And that was a thing that I could talk to other guys about. (laughs) And once I came out, I suddenly realized that I found it all very boring and I didn't need to hold on to that as like a, a source to like funnel all of that like masculine sort of, you know, social bonding through. And, uh, and I let it go. And now people who I, like, knew very well then and then I don't know anymore when they'll run into me and they'll be like, oh, how are the Yankees doing? So is my team. And I was like, I don't have any idea how they're doing. And I really don't care.
1: Oh, that's fascinating. <laughs> and
0: I find that's not unusual. Like, I knew someone in college who was, like, really into, like, fantasy novels when they were growing up. And then as soon as they came out, they slowly just completely lost interest in it. And I, I feel like that's just a thing that people have where, like, you have all of this sort of stuff that's building and you don't want to acknowledge it so you're in denial over your experience right and so then you have to distract yourself with something so you pick this like special interest and then that just becomes everything and that's like a shorthand of you don't really need to get to know me because you know this one thing about me and we can just talk about that and then you don't need to ask a lot of questions
1: but was so this is really interesting to me so were you just
0: like overnight like oh yeah baseball couldn't give a shit anymore It was basically like a year, as I said, like it was a year long process. I'm slow to evolve, but I'm open to evolution. So it happens. (laughs) But yeah, it was like a year long process of me just being out of, I think being away at college helped because I was outside of the kind of like familiar rhythms of my life. And I was in a very different Mm -hmm. context. And I slowly realized that I didn't want to put the effort in to keep up with the sport in the way that I was. And then I, once I stopped Making it a habitual part of my life, I realized I didn't get much pleasure out of the things that I was supposed to enjoy about that process, even casually. And so then I just slowly let it go completely.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, so sorry, I got sidetracked then. What were we talking about? <laughs> Are you moving to New York with those first days? Oh, finding your queer brethren. Yes. Where were we? Where were we?
0: Mm. Yeah, so we kind of jumped to my second year of college. Oh, yes, yes. And then
1: so do you remember the first time going out on the scene in New York?
0: Yes, I definitely do. Well, it's kind of funny because the first year I was there, I went with my two roommates who were both straight and both very proud to have a gay friend, and they brought me to this bar that was like a kind of 18 and older bar for gay guys. And they brought me there, and they were like, we're going to get you laid. It's going to be oh. so cool.
1: That's kind of icky.
0: It was it was as much as I thought that I deserved. I think in that moment, and so I was okay with it. But looking back on it now, mm-hmm. I definitely don't have great memory of that experience. And then, like I said, well, so were
1: these two straight people me- men? Men. Yes. Or Were they female? Yeah, they were both men. Ah, oh, so weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was it them thinking that they were really enlightened and really yes, like yeah, it was definitely minded
0: Yeah. Uh, Although, ironically, uh, many years later, I found out that one of them was not as straight as he purported to be at the time. And so I think there was also a little bit of uh, vicariousness. he was doing research. Yeah. Just like living through Mm, my experience mm. a little bit so he didn't have to tiptoe out the waters. So that actually adds an interesting layer to that whole thing. So were they like aggressively trying to find you someone uh, to make out with? I wouldn't use the term aggressive, but I wouldn't say that would be an inappropriate term <laughs> to use. Hmm. <laughs>
1: it's a strange amount of pressure to put on someone.
0: Yes, it was. I, do, I don't have much add to add to that because you're correct. It was an odd experience. And it was it was an odd experience at the time, and it feels much stranger to look back on it now. Yeah. But it was indicative of what, like, the social world that I was in at that point in my life where it was really just a novelty for everyone else around me to be, like, supportive of their gay friend. And that like, that was all my queerness was mm-hmm. allowed to be. And then when I finally got actual queer peers in my life, all of that went away. And I actually got to be a whole person in a you know, which was nice. And uh, not something that I guess I was used to mm-hmm. or realized... I was even allowed to have in my life until that moment. And so that's kind of like where, going to the place that we're gonna talk about today, how all of that kind of factors into what a incredible experience that moment was for me. Okay,
1: so that f- was your first experience in a gay bar or a queer space with those yeah. two straight people, mm-hmm.
0: well,
1: straightish people. And then at, at what time did you start going to Flash or like, do you remember your first time being at Flash?
0: Yeah, it was probably like fall the following year. So like fall of 2009, pretty early into that Mm -hmm. next year. Because like I said, I was living with all of those people beginning in like that September. And, you know, that was pretty much the place to go at that point when we decided that we were going to go downtown and go to a club. And that was one one of the few queer spaces that it was really easy for people who weren't 21 and didn't have a fake ID could just go. And that was obviously a big part of why we chose that place. <laughs> but yeah, then it kind of became like a a regular thing for like two years basically. Uh,
1: and so do you remember then the first time that you ever went there?
0: I do, I just remember like walking in and seeing all of the kind, like it was just so many men who were all mostly incredibly attractive <laughs> and most of them had very little clothes on and it like smelt like sweat. And there was, like, steam. And it was just, like, walking into, like, you know, like Alice in Wonderland kind of moment. We are just like, wow, I didn't know that this could exist. And this is incredible. Like, the go-go boys <laughs> dancing on the platforms. And so you're just like, what? I, what is even happening here? Like, so, yeah, that was a pretty... That was, I have friends who, who love wrestling. And there's this term in wrestling where, like, something, like, really excites you. And they call it popping, uh, which I think... <laughs> is particularly relevant to this, um, because I definitely popped uh, in that sense, among other senses, possibly. (laughs) (laughs) Something, yeah.
1: And, And so just so I'm clear, you said it was a bit like Alice in Wonderland. Were you Alice?
0: Yes. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) And, you know, we were still college kids, so we weren't drinking at the bar. But we definitely had our friend who looked old enough to get booze from this one place who didn't card to get us a bunch of drinks. So we had drank uh, quite a bit before we ever walked into the club. So that also kind of contributed to the sort of, like altered reality that I felt like I was walking into. (laughs) Wonder. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And then what next? So
1: you saw the go-go dancers, you saw the scantily clad men. What else happened that night?
0: Uh, I just, you know, all those club memories sort of blend together where it's just like dancing with your friends and then with random strangers and then sometimes with people that you want to be dancing with and sometimes people that you don't want to be dancing with. Sometimes you would make friends with people on the dance floor then you'd leave as there was always one person who wanted to smoke even though me and my friends didn't smoke uh, and so like you would go outside and you know, get actual fresh air for a second, but just like with cigarette smoke, so not that fresh. Mm. Um, And then you, you'd get to like, see what those people actually looked like outside of the strobe lights. And that was always an interesting experience. But yeah, it all kind of blends together for me, honestly. (laughs) So then talk to me about a typical night. So if
1: we went to the club together, and we got through the front door, what would be your first port of call? Like, where would you go?
0: Yeah. Well, so the typical night would definitely start before we ever got to the club (laughs) because we would Mm -hmm. basically, it would be somebody's job to get the alcohol for the evening. And there would be a lot of discussion over how that was going to happen through text messages over the course of the day um, until classes finally finished. Uh, And then you would probably meet up with your friends we would meet up at like around like 7 seven thirty, 30 and then just hang out in the dorm for like three hours just like hanging out and and drinking and people sometimes people would have jello shots a lot of the times would be like oh these girls are going to come because they really want to go and then it would be like a lot of like oh are they really going to come are they not going to come and it would be like a lot of you know typical teenage drama around that for a while um and then finally like around 10 o'clock you would like head down to the club, which would take like around an hour probably to get there most of the time, um, dealing with subways. And of course, being very drunk at that point dealing with subways. So the stairs and the turnstiles and everything was just an adventure. Uh <laughs> and then finally getting there, and you'd usually have to like wait in line for a little while to get in. Um, but there was never like a bouncer who was like, You're not allowed in. It was just a lot of people, you know. And then you'd come in and you'd get like funneled through these like long dark hallway. And then all of a sudden it would just open up to this like giant space of boys for the most part. And then after that, you're just kind of like dancing. You try to find a space where there's room and then you just kind of, you stick to that space for as long as you can. Why? Uh, Social anxiety, probably. (laughs) Just like, this is my comfort zone. This is where I'm going to say. Oh, this is something I can get behind.
1: (laughs) So you're very territorial then.
0: Yes. Yeah. I need to feel safe in my space. And so I just stayed in that space until you get kind of like pushed out or all of your friends leave. And you're just like, oh, no, what? like that definitely happened to me more than once where you would start dancing with someone that you don't know. And you get kind of into it for a little while. And then like you turn around and everyone is gone. And you're like, oh, no, what's happened? (laughs) <laughs> to figure out where everybody went. And, oh, that's the worst. Yeah, because oh. also cell phones did not work in that space at all. I don't know if they had like blockers or if there were just so many people or if it was just, you know, 2009, 2010, That technology wasn't as good. I don't know. But you could never get in touch with people with their cell phones when you were in there. So it was really like a black box experience.
1: Oh, yes.
0: My move would always be to check outside first. And a lot of times that's where they would end up being. But if not, you just kind of have to, and it's so dark and there's the lights and there's like the steam as we discussed (laughs) and uh, so many people. And yeah, it would be tricky to find everybody. And that would also be a thing like at the end of the night where you're trying to like figure out like are we all ready to go? That would be difficult to figure out. (laughs) I I had one friend who always ended up making friends with random people there. And so then they would always like come out with more people than we came in with. (laughs) So let's talk a bit more
1: about this when everyone is ready to leave, because the thing about going out with a group of people is that, well, you're at the whim of all of the other people that you're with. Are you generally the type of person that Is the first that's ready to leave or are you like an all-nighter?
0: I'm not necessarily the one who's like the first to leave but I'm very much the one who's like we need to keep the trains running on time so like once the plan gets in place I have like a lot of urgency towards like okay everybody's got to go like it's like one in the morning or whatever like the crowd is starting to filter out maybe a little bit or whatever the impetus Mm -hmm. is then I kind of like kick into gear and it's always like it's usually like two or three people have gotten together and said like, okay, we're ready to go, but we don't know where these two people are. <laughs> and then it would always be my job to be like, all right, I'm going to go find them. I'm going to track them down. I'm going to make them come with us so that way we can all leave because you're not going to leave them behind. But yeah, so that would be kind of my, my mode. Oh, okay. So you're the ringleader. Exactly. Yeah. Again, social anxiety, right? Like all of that anxiety has to be filtered <laughs> somewhere. So it turns into planning and executing plans. <laughs>
1: Oh, oh no. Is that why I like planning? It definitely
0: is. Is It's a moment of revelation for me.
1: Oh, shit. Mm. Well, then, while we're here, let's talk a bit more about social anxiety. Because, I mean, what a delicious subject. How does that manifest in the world of flirting and talking to strangers?
0: Well, you know, I definitely grew up at a time where you basically learned that If you drink enough, your anxiety will go away and then you can be present in a moment, which I don't think was a great lesson to have Um, learned at 18 um, mm. (laughs) for a variety of reasons. But that was definitely the tactic that I tried the most back then. And it was, you know, it would be successful to varying degrees at various points in time. but the worst part about that was when you would start to sober up and then it would all kind of like come at once and then you just felt so much worse about whatever you were in so that definitely are experiences that happened to me in the past and yeah for kids listening don't use alcohol to treat social anxiety it's a very bad strategy (laughs) Mm -mm.
1: so what would happen then when you would sober up would you just like excuse yourself and run away
0: uh more or less you know there's like certain stories that i could definitely tell where that was basically what it would happen or just like like i would feel anxiety but i did not have the kind of emotional awareness at that stage of my life to necessarily put that name to it and have that level of understanding Mm -hmm. and so instead i would kind of mislabel it as sort of as dread or kind of like Even like danger or something or kind of just projecting things onto other people in that moment where it was really just if I had taken a couple of deep breaths and just like told myself I was okay, then I probably would have been okay. But And then it would always turn back around into Mm -hmm. negative uh, self-talk like shame and guilt and, you know, that sort of thing that is not helpful and that through lots of therapy I've learned how to avoid. But that would always be where that would end up. So does the social anxiety ever go away or is that just something I have to learn to live with? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, certainly you could be medicated in an appropriate and professional way and that can sometimes help depending on the severity of it. I've been on medication for anxiety in the past, but I tend to filter off of it and, and do okay without it because I feel like I've just learned how to live with it better in my own life. You know, just the sort of the tools that they teach you about Mm. taking deep breaths, positive reframing, uh, that sort of thing. It just really kind of helps. Also just experience when you're like 18, 19 years old, you've Mm. never done any of the things that you're putting yourself in. And I think having the experience to know I've been here before and I know that I can handle what I'm in the middle of or I've been here before and I know that I can't handle this so I'm gonna remove myself from it, right? Either way, I think that can help in terms of the using that positive self-talk piece that I think is really helpful for battling anxiety. But I still get social anxiety all mm. the time. Yeah, I wish it was just more common for us to
1: be open about that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think cause we're all taught to, like, push down our neuroses and put on this veneer of uh, that you've got it together. But if it was just common for us to be like, oh, by the way, I'm a bit annoying and odd until you get to know me. And then it will all make sense. Then I think that would just make things so much easier.
0: Yeah, that would hmm. be nice.
1: <laughs> so what, what were we talking about? Social anxiety, how that plays
0: out in the job. <laughs> I do think that part of, like, the appeal, going back to the club, of being in that space, is that, like, well, definitely for me in that moment in my life, the sort of dissociating from yourself and just feeling like you're part of a group entity, you know, on the dance floor... Uh, Now, certainly I was never the best dancer. I don't think I was ever going to win any awards (laughs) or anything like that. But just the music is running through you and moving and you're in this space where everyone else is kind of in this collective action together. Um, You can kind of like lose yourself in that and you can get outside of your head and, and just be in your body. And I think that was something that was really appealing to me at that point in my life. I think today Mm -hmm. I find that much less appealing because it's like so loud and you can't talk to the people you're with right (laughs) like there's no and it's like you know like I'm in my 30s now and so you know you're lucky if you get to see your friends all at the same time you know once a year maybe and so like the one time you all get to be together you're going to go to a space where you can't hear each other talk like no that's terrible who would want that but (laughs) but when I was that age that kind of like losing yourself in the moment was just something that I was desperate for, and that place definitely gave that to me. Okay, so I have follow-up questions here. First of all,
1: (laughs) you used the word disassociate. Did I say that right? Disassociate. Yeah. About that experience on the dance floor. And that's a very strong word to use.
0: Yeah. Or it is to me. Why that word? Well, I think it's relevant to where my state of mind was at that point in time. I definitely... Had gone through a lot of experiences growing up, a lot of trauma Mm. that I have since worked to process through therapy. Um, But before the therapy, dissociating from my emotional state was the coping strategy that I had learned. And I think that going to a place like Splash was a moment where I could do that in a way that felt. Healthier, like safer, like I felt like I was being a part of a community in that space, um, mm. which is definitely not entirely true because you know it wasn't just a big group of, of friendly fellows who just had my best interest at heart. So it could have been dangerous going to it in that mindset. But in the moment, that wasn't how I was experiencing it at all. So it was, the, but yeah, I use that term specifically because that was unfortunately the way that I learned how to cope with a lot of the sort of emotional turmoil that was going through my body in Mm. that moment in my life but I think it's a really good point that the dance floor
1: is that space that enables you to be present in your body to put aside things that you're thinking or overthinking and so my follow-up question is around this observation you've had about getting older I'm gonna whisper that sorry (laughs) getting older where you no longer feel the need to be in a loud sweaty club when you're catching up with your friends. Yes. But where do you now have the opportunity to be present in your body like you would on a
0: dance floor? Yeah that's a really good question and I think that if I was in therapy right now my therapist would also probably ask me that question. (laughs) Um, but no, I think that that's, that is the difficulty of adult life, or at least my adult life is having those moments where you can be present in your body in that same way. I find that being part of nature gives me that. I'm not a very spiritual person, but I do find being in nature to be very enriching in that sense of really just feeling Mm -hmm. connected to the space, to the air, to the animals, to the trees, you know. Um, as hokey as that might sound, and the beauty of it, you know? Just like when I was 19, seeing all of those beautiful boys half-naked was just an incredible... (laughs) Wait, 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 wait. So now you're not interested in
1: half-naked boys, you're interested in trees, is that what you're saying?
0: (laughs) Well, I guess why not both, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, preferably swinging from the tree
0: trunks, yeah. Sure, I would settle for that. I think, you know, if you can get a park <laughs> going with that as a feature, I think a lot of people would show up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How to get people more interested in the outdoors. <laughs> but yeah, so I think those spaces are really good. Whenever I go back to New York, just being a part of the world there also feels very Enriching anytime I have the opportunity to feel like I'm part of a community, unless just like a person, just like I siloed off. Um, mm-hmm. I went to a wedding, a friend's wedding recently that had that same sort of experience where it was. Everybody was together and we were dancing and it felt really nice, even though it was much less salacious uh, than the past experience <laughs> were. Um, well, but that, I
1: don't know, at weddings, you know, it can get a bit salacious.
0: It could. It could. This was like a very family oriented wedding. It was like a lot um, of it was a big wedding. So there were lots of friends, but there was also lots of like, you know, older relatives around and little kids and stuff. So, <laughs> um, OK. All right. Well, I won't put that imagery in. Yeah. So so you were at this wedding. (laughs) Yes. And that was great because I feel like that sense of isolation and loneliness definitely, like for, I think most people got much worse over COVID and the experience of slowly kind Mm. of getting out into the world again has been a long process for me. And being at that Mm. wedding was the first time that I feel like I really 100% let go of all of the anxieties around you know getting sick or like whatever and just was with my friends having fun dancing drinking and and it was one of those like weekend events so I really just kind of got to cocoon myself off for a few days and just be present in that experience and that was fantastic Mm. and that and I I didn't once again like going back to that whole thing that we talked about at the beginning with being like a young gay person not realizing what you were missing Having that experience, I didn't realize how much I missed that until I gave it to myself. And, yeah, I'm trying to learn from that to just... It's
1: uh, so interesting, isn't it? This, I've had, I mean, I don't know what your specific experiences are around COVID, but I've had that where it's like yeah, I'm just going to stay home. Whereas in the past, I would have been like, yeah, sure, I'll come out. Uh And those occasions when I do go out, I'm like, wow, yeah, this is what it's about. But I'm finding it hard to transition to that as my default.
0: Yeah, I definitely can relate to that. And it's, you know, you just got to make time for it, though, I think. You really do. That's something that I've been trying to tell myself is just you have to make the effort Because your life is not going to keep offering those opportunities to you on a silver platter and push you to do it, you know? Like, there's all of these responsibilities Mm. that we all have every day, and it's so easy, especially after the experiences that we had where for a long time those weren't even an option. So you just kind of got stuck on autopilot of, like, I do my job, I do this, I do this, you know? You have to make the time for it. You have to – whatever it is, whatever makes you feel connected to other people, you have to do it or else – there's a downside to it that can get really, really severe the longer you push it off. But it's not, in my experience, at least, it's not going to happen until you make time for it yourself.
1: Mm. And it's that cheesy thing about making yourself do things that you are terrified of.
0: Yeah. And I think when I was very young, you know, like growing up, like as a kid, even like in my teenage years, I was not the type of person who would just take a chance like that. And then honestly the process of coming out and, and like having a relatively positive experience made me feel a lot more confident in just taking that chance and, and making that risk and, and doing that experience that you maybe wouldn't have necessarily done but there's a chance you can get something positive out of it. And then I think, you know, there's so much in adult life that, that makes it easy to not push yourself and not take those chances. But if you don't, your life just gets smaller and your world just gets smaller and then you start to go stir crazy if you're like me. So you have to, you have to make the time and you have to make the chance. Okay. So
1: what's the one thing that we're both going to do today that's going to terrify us?
0: (laughs) That's a good question. Um, yeah, I don't, I'll have to think about that shit, I don't know. I Well, no, you know what? The thing that I'm going to do that was going to terrify me was doing this podcast. So I already checked mine off the box. I checked oh, my box damn already. It. You've already done yours. <laughs> okay, well, what's mine then?
1: Uh, okay, I'll think about it and we'll, we'll get back to it by the end of the conversation. Okay. Or I'll just edit this out and then no one will ever know that I've made this challenge to you. <laughs> one of the things I want to pick up with you is your definition of the word community because you've talked about it in this way of and the examples that you gave were around being on the streets of New York City and being in a club on the dance floor being part of the crowd and both of those to me sound like quite passive roles for you (sighs) I'm not really articulating this the best way But I guess my question is, like, is that all you need to feel part of a community that you're just
0: present? That's a really good question and a really smart observation. I think that for me, being part of the community is more of a passive experience because so much of my more isolated experiences are about me taking action and doing something for myself or taking action and doing something for someone else. I'm someone who really cares about being of service to other people as well. And even in my professional life, that's the case. And so I feel like the, what I get out of being part of a community is having the pressure off to have to be the person who's acting, who is planning, like we said earlier, right? Who is organizing and just, being able to remind myself that, like, there's a world outside my window, you know, that I can be a part of this moving thing that has all mm-hmm. of these different access points into and all of these different people populating it. And and there's something really powerful to me as a reminder of that. I think that's why I talk about it in the way that I do. It kind of, like, means, like, letting my guard down and letting myself be... A part of something instead of feeling like I need to be in charge of it in order to keep it safe or in order to make sure that it goes the way it's supposed to go, you know? But are you a part of it if you just happen to be there? Well, I like to think that we're all kind of a part of this community of people, you know, that are in the world Mm -hmm. and that we kind of lose track of that interconnection because we get kind of siloed off into our own groups and our own places and our own lives. And I think that That reminder that even if we're separate people in a space, we are connected is a powerful one and something that can kind of help center me when I can kind of spiral out. Yeah. And sorry, I'm not like implying that there's one
1: answer and that I'm expecting you to say a particular thing. I'm just asking these questions. These are very good questions. Yeah. Um, And this is one of the topics that we struggle with a lot on this show. I don't know why I say we. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Me and your listeners. Oh, yeah, my listeners. Yeah, of course. Me and my (laughs) listeners. We we talk about community and what that means because it's bandied about a lot in terms of talking about the queer community, the gay community, the LGBTQ community. But there's not one definition. And maybe that's perfectly fine. Maybe it doesn't need to be one definition. But there's part of me that wants to pin it down and understand it.
0: Yeah, well, I think it's about not feeling like you're out in the world alone. right? And so sometimes that does mean that you are acting in support of other people in that community and it's a more active experience. And certainly I've done that in the past. And I think that that's an important responsibility, especially if you are talking about a specific community that is targeted, like the queer community often is. But it also just means, you know, making space for queerness, if we're talking about queer community specifically, just making space for queerness in my life, you know, and making space for it in the things that I do. You know, like I work for this website, Um, I always try to make sure to bring a queer perspective to the work that I do there and to highlight different types of media that is queer focused because... It's a website that that sort of thing could get overlooked otherwise uh even though our audience is receptive when we do cover that sort of thing so i always Mm. try to be purposeful in the in those choices but um yeah i think it's going to be different for everybody
1: Mm. yeah and so maybe then the thing that scares me that i need to embrace today is not putting a bow around things sorry that's a total cop out i'm already retracting it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I think I just worry sometimes that if something has
0: such a broad meaning, then it's actually meaningless. Sure. I think that for me, I, and I hear where you're coming from, for me, when I talk about community and what I get out of that experience, the broadness is, is part of the appeal. Because mm. like I said, it makes you feel connected to these people and makes you feel like you're in this together. I'm not a very religious person. I don't believe that there is a higher power looking after us, you know, taking care of the people who need the most help. And so I feel like it's our responsibility as people to support each other and to take care of those who need the help. And I think that thinking about the world as a community of people who need that interconnectedness, that need that support, is part of my worldview in that way. And that's why I like spaces that allow you to feel that physically because it reminds you in a way that you can kind of get lost in or at least speaking myself i can get lost inside of my own head and forget otherwise but when you're in a physical Mm -hmm. space with people it's very difficult for me to not feel that connection Um, Mm -hmm. and it's a really nice reminder for that and a wonderful segue back to the purpose of this conversation,
1: which is to talk about spaces, right? Yes. Oh, well done. So, Splash, do you remember why you stopped going?
0: Yes. It's not a very happy reason. Um, there was a falling out in my friends' group uh, at the um. time. And uh, it was sort of the situation where I ended up on one side of things and everyone else ended up on the other, or the people who refrained from being involved, ended up not, you know, wanting to get too far involved with me after that. And so that space just kind of felt tainted. You know, it didn't feel like a space that I could go to anymore because I so associated with those people and those experiences and, and losing that friendship and that, and that group of people, it made it hard to go back to. But it was very sad for me to hear. I didn't realize until you approached me on this podcast that it actually closed down um, a few years ago. And that was very sad because, you know, I think something great about the podcast that you're doing is is highlighting the fact that so many of our queer spaces are closing down and and we're losing that. And I know it was such Mm -hmm. a vital experience for me at that moment in my life to see that. And it makes me sad that there's fewer places in the world now than there was back then for people like me to have those experiences. Does it make you sad for any other reason? Well, I guess, you know, it's closed so I can never go back there. And I think now, with enough time and enough distance, there's a lot of reasons why I would want to go back there without having to think about those friends and that I'm no longer in touch with, right? Or that I could return there for nostalgic reasons and it doesn't feel painful, you know? So losing that opportunity, being able to bring other people in my life who I didn't know then, who I do know now, uh, to that and share that part of myself with them, like that's Now it's just a story, it doesn't get to be a space that I can bring people into. So that does make me feel sad as well. So if you could go back
1: there for a night, let's say you transport back in time and you are showing up there on the night, the very first night that Alex ever went there and you get to come face to face with Alex, you get to have a conversation with him. Would you take that opportunity? And if so, what would you say?
0: I would say, come outside to the smoking section so you can hear what I have to tell you. (laughs) Um, No, but yeah, I would definitely take that opportunity. Of course, that's an incredible opportunity to have. And I would probably tell him, you know, come to this place more often because this time in your life is a lot shorter than you realize and you should really make the most of it. I would also tell him that, you know, that there's a lot of stuff in your future that you could never possibly have anticipated, both in good ways and bad ways. And that you need to make the most of this moment now because it's gonna mean a lot to you in a few years. And then I would probably tell him to change his major and get a different degree because that would have made my life a lot easier. (laughs) (laughs) Just do it. Yeah, just trust me.
1: (laughs) So. Do you have any memories of Splash or clubbing from your own queer scene that you want to share? Well, if you do, I would love to hear all about it. So why not get in touch? I want to create the biggest online record of people's memories and stories of queer clubbing, but I need your help. Go to LostSpacesPodcast.com and find the section Share a Lost Space to tell me all about what it is you got up to. You can also reach out to me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where my handle is Lost Spaces Pod. Find out more about Alex by following him on both Twitter and Letterboxd, where his profile is at Media Thinkings. And make sure you also visit ThePopBreak.com for all of your pop culture and entertainment needs. Mm-hmm. If you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate if you subscribed, left a review on your podcast platform, or just told other people who you think might be interested interested in giving it a wee listen to. My name is Kay Anderson and you have been listening to Lost Spaces.